Thank you for downloading this message from Grace Christian Fellowship. We pray that you receive encouragement from the study of God's Holy Word and that you will grow in the faith and understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so I'm going to hit the Word. We're going to hit the ground running here. And I'm curious before I really get rolling, how many of you really, you, you have got a really good sense of the topic of Sukkot? You know what this is. One, two. How many of you really three? How many of you really don't have a very good sense. You know, you hear Sukkot and you go, what? All right, so more there. How many of you aren't sure if you know this topic? Thank you for your honesty. There's a couple hands there. I'm going to bring some, I hopefully bring some clarity to it, but what I really want to do is look at why it matters for us today, because it matters for us today. It really does. And I'm going to go over several reasons for it. And the last reason... I think is the most relevant reason for us here at Grace Christian Fellowship. I had the chance to share this message yesterday at Beth Messiah, and there was, I don't think the last reason for Sukkot is necessarily the greatest reason for Beth Messiah. So as I was thinking about this, I think the last reason is really appropriate for for us here at Grace, particularly. So I'll tell you what, let's make a deal. Stay with me to the last point, and then you can tune me out. Sound good? I'm just having fun by saying that. So Sukkot is a big day. And before I really get rolling, I want to tell you, by the way, this sometimes doesn't sit quite right. Does it, Mark? Sometimes it's just off. So <clears throat> I, I personally, this holiday kind of resonates with me. And that's what it is. Sukkot is actually a holiday. Um, some know it as the Festival of Tabernacles. Some as Booths, Festival of Booths, Feast of Booths. Sukkot is a holiday, and it personally resonates with me just because of the origins to it. And I'll give you a a little bit of a backdrop. When I was a boy, I grew up, uh, most of my years were in Anchorage, Alaska. And and in public schools, every year at that time, I don't know if they still do it, but we would have survival class. And they would take us out of school for a day, and they would put us somewhere outside, and they would teach us things like how to start a fire, how to trap rabbits or trap small wildlife if you needed to live. And if there's snow, how you live in a snow fort and how you dig that out. If there's no snow, what you do and how you build up a bed off the ground. And so we learned all of these things. You know, if you've got one piece of, uh, one article of clothing, you know, where in your cold, where it's the first place, do you cover your chest, do you cover your head? You know, we learned all these things. Every year we would go and learn these things as much as we could learn one day a year. And it's something, you know, learn to live off the land. And I, I appreciate the values in that. Uh, today, I actually think about, I reflect on that time, and it was a good time for me. There's also another reason. I think of, I've got two great uncles. During World War II, uh, Japan had invaded uh, a couple of the Alaskan islands, the Aleutian Chain, Attu and Kiska, and some of you history buffs may follow this. But they actually landed on those islands, and they took them over, and America sent troops to fight. And the first wave of troops America sent to, sent to fight the Japanese on, on one of the islands, uh, they were trained by the military, and they were just people from all over the U.S. And when they landed on the islands, they didn't know how to survive in the extreme cold and the extreme conditions. So the next wave of soldiers, the government had learned their lesson because many, many, many of the first wave of soldiers died from frostbite and exposure, or they lost limbs. And it was greater casualties due to the conditions than it was the fighting. So it was a bad scene. So the second wave of soldiers, America thought, well, okay, we learned our lesson. And they came and they focused on a part of the country, uh, the northern border of our country, specifically like like North Dakota, Minnesota. They took the uh, 
they liked Native Americans along those states. And uh, they knew how to survive in conditions without needing to be trained by the army. And I had two great uncles who were in the military at the time, and they were in the army, and they were sent in that second wave to go be part of that situation. So they learned, they knew to live off the land. And to me, Sukkot, you know, when I think of this holiday, there's a, there's a large element of it that has to do with the land and, and the, the exposure outside and what it's about. And, and I just, it kind of resonates with me. I, I like this holiday. Now, if you know what I'm talking about, you go, yeah, okay, I see that connection. If you don't, I hope by the end of it, you go, oh, I see why Jim, why it resonates with him. So Sukkot, let's look at the first slide. Modern day Sukkot in Israel, this is kind of what it looks like. Sukkot is a God-given holiday, God-given command, really, in Leviticus. We'll look at it in, in just a minute. But uh, they, families need to build these booths, these tents. So that's why it's called Festival of Booths or Feast of Booths, because you live in a booth. We, today, we might call it a Feast of Tents, right? So they live in a, a booth for a week. And they, they do it at a specific time. And this is a, an apartment complex, probably apartment complex, I believe in Jerusalem. And you can see where these families have attached to the backside of their house, you know, their back door, the, uh, these booths. And they would live in them for a week. And I do like modern day sukkahs. That's the sukkot is the plural. Sukkah is the tent. Uh, I'd like the modern day sukkahs because you, you, you can actually go in and out of them to use the bathroom. The technology, right? It's much easier to be connected to running water. So they may stay in the tent, and they may eat in the tent in the sukkah, but they go in their house for water. So this is modern day kind of view of this. And it's a real deal. This happens. And even in Milwaukee, we may be in certain neighborhoods here. You can be driving in certain neighborhoods and see these sorts of things outside of houses. You ever seen that? Yeah, Joel? So they're, they're here. <clears throat> All right, let's look at the Bible. This is what the Lord's speaking here. Way back, Leviticus 23. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booths to the Lord. Okay. This is kind of a part of a sequence of holidays. Jewish holidays that are commanded by God. They're in Scripture. And they're, they're, it's important. The days actually matter here. They're not, it's not a willy-nilly day like, Ah, let's take the second Thursday in November. It's actually a connection of days. The first day is Rosh Hashanah. It's a time of reflection on the things in our lives and what the Lord means to us and who he is. So 10 days, and then comes Yom Kippur, which is a day of atonement. The one day that uh, they could be forgiven all year was that one day, Yom Kippur. is this very, very serious day. And then five days after that is Sukkot, Festival of Booths. And that is an unbelievable celebration. We have a very serious time to begin to think about the Lord and our lives, Rosh Hashanah. And then there's a time of atonement. If you can only be forgiven one day a year, you take that day very seriously, don't you? And if you miss that one day, you're in big trouble. You don't want to die in the next year because you only have one day to be forgiven. And that's Yom Kippur. Very serious, very solemn day. And then five days after that, boom! The realization, the forgiveness is set in, and it is a celebration. Some Jews today think the most important holiday is Yom Kippur, but if we would read historical documents, we would actually see that it's the celebration, the festival of booths, Sukkot, that's the biggest day because we remember all that he's done, and we have been forgiven. This is what they would say. It's a big day. 
So, festival of booths. On the first day shall be a holy uh, convocation. You shall do no ordinary work. My dad likes to tell his story. You know, for him, cleaning the garage is not ordinary. So he would clean the garage. He could clean the garage with, he would think, yeah, it's not ordinary. Well, on behalf of his kids, it was ordinary for me to have to do it. So on this day, I wouldn't be allowed to clean the garage. Good. Um, for seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. Solemn here is solemn. Yeah, I said celebration. Now I'm speaking of solemn. Basically, solemn just means take it seriously. You shall do no ordinary work. Go ahead, Dylan. We read on, and you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. This is what we have. These are reminders of that segment of the verse. So the fruit of the tree, we have a citron. Looks like a lemon. Smells very nice. This is, by the way, a, very, a small citron. They get bigger, smaller than a grapefruit, bigger than a lemon. Smells very good. Uh, it, pardon me? Uh, well, people actually make jelly with it after the holidays. Some people do, yeah. It's got its own kind of flavor. It's kind of lemony, kind of citrusy. So they'll take the citron as a reminder, and then literally the, the willow and these, four, these other three components, uh, the willow and then the palm frond and then leaves of the land, and they'll hold them. In modern-day Judaism, they take these four things, on every day except the Sabbath, and they, they, this is a modern interpretation. God didn't say to do this. I want to be clear. This is just a, a tradition, a modern-day tradition, to take them to wave, to say, we remember, okay? And they wave all four directions, and then above and below, we remember. And uh, traditional prayers are said for these things. But that's where it comes from, the specific verse. You shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever. How long does forever last? I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. You know, I've heard people say, oh, no, that's Old Testament. That doesn't have to be remembered anymore. When I read forever, I can't help but interpret that as forever. You shall, uh, it is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. I don't believe we have any native Israelites here, so that's good news. If you don't want to dwell in a booth. If you want to live in a booth for seven days, native Israel, you can, we can do it. But uh, Anyway, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. These instructions were given about over 4,000 years ago, just over 4,000 years ago. And what a reminder. I led the people out, they stayed in booths, and everybody has to remember that. So as we think of Sukkot today, we think of it as, as booths, and there's, there's value in remembering that for us. Here at Grace Christian Fellowship, the first, the first principle I want to pull out the thing that we can learn here is generations. We see generations mentioned in this. You know, generations occurs in the home. The very idea of marriage, who invented marriage? God. He sees Adam, way back in Genesis, he sees Adam, and he looks at Adam and he says, hey, it's not good for a man to be alone. So he makes Eve. Blam! 
The first marriage. It was his idea. And then, of course, children and, and whatever, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, cousins, family. Generational lessons are taught through family. All through the scriptures, in fact, we see the Lord saying, teach them to your children. Teach them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you retire, when you arise, when you go to bed, when you wake up. Teach them all the time. Teach, teach, teach. Your family, your family, your family. The very unit that God designed. And this is a day that reminds us of family. How many of you who have ever been in a car with a sibling or even a friend maybe, but a sibling and you're in the back seat and you, this, is, this is my half. This is my seat. This is the line. You can't cross the line. You know what I'm talking about? You got siblings in your car and they're, and they're, they're violating your airspace. You get off my side and the fight starts. Or if you have kids or you're, you're driving your friends, whatever, you know, there's territorial things. Could you imagine thinking in terms of generations, kids in a sukkah? This is my side of the tent. You can't come in. And how many discussions they must have had. You know, some of these families, in modern, in orthodoxy, it's very common to see families with six, seven, eight kids. In a sukkah for a week. Boy, is there lessons in there. Right? We're going to have another discussion. It's called quiet time. The generational lessons that happen in Asuka are amazing. And preparing for it, you know, I mean, I can imagine one dad or mom saying, okay, it's time to build Asuka. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, Mordecai, you go get the boards. Uh, Esther, you go get the decorations. And the family would pool together and build the Asuka. The reminder to us, the first reminder, the value of, of Sukkot is that we see we remember that God operates through family units. You may be here, you might not have any family. You may have not a soul. That is where we come in. We are spiritual family. It's good to remember that, isn't it? God sees his generational teachings and 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 and, and he connects it to Sukkot and all these other days that we have. It's a good thing. So the second, the second illustration, the illustrative value of Sukkot is this. Dylan, go ahead. Standing out is nothing new. Let's be honest. The idea of camping outside in a tent for a week because the Lord says, how many of you think that's kind of weird? I do. I think it's odd. I can't think of a single religion anywhere in the world that has to camp outside for a week. Don't you think it's, come on, it's a little strange, right? We can embrace that. I'm not making fun of God when I say it's odd. I'm just saying it's unusual. It's not a common thing. The, I, can you imagine the Israelites? Can you imagine the Israelites back in the day and the neighbors going, oh, here they go again. They're setting up those tents. They're living outside for a week. What's that all about? I think it's unusual. But that's nothing new for God's people. We are very unusual. We've been unusual forever. You know, even back in the day, back in the law, Numbers 15, the Lord says, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments. He's talking about men. So men would take the tassels. Today, a lot of times when we think of uh, Jewish tassels, we think of the prayer shawl, the talit, the talit, or the talis that goes around with tassels hanging down. But God never said make a, a shawl like that. He just said put tassels in the corners of their garments. So... What they would do back then is they would hang tassels in the corners of their garments. If they had a robe, they'd have a tassel. I've got a picture of a rabbi from like 1903 or 1904. 
And he's got these little itty bitty tassels like this, and they're hanging the bottom of his robes. Could you imagine being in a multicultural marketplace, like a mall, you know, back in the day? Multicultural marketplace, and you see all these people shopping, you immediately knew by looking at the clothes who the Israelites were. Oh, that guy's got tassels. He's an Israelite. Oh, there's an Israelite right there. I can tell he's got tassels. They always stood out. Their clothes stood out. And God wanted that. He wanted their standing out. Now, there were values to the tassels. God actually explains the values. But he, he had his people stand out. Leviticus 19, you shall not make any cuts uh, on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. Israelites, no tattoos. And their skin was just skin. It wasn't covered in ink. And around in those regions, there was lots and lots, and we know historically there were lots of tattoos, lots of markings, but not for Israelites. So if the Israelites, they, were, they would stand out in terms of their clothes, but they also stood out in terms of their skin. No tattoos. I think it's very funny today to see somebody with a tattoo with he, in Hebrew writing. It's not an ancient tattoo, I'll tell you that. I'm not making fun of you, by the way. If you have a tattoo with Hebrew writing, good for you. I just think it's kind of a funny thing because they stood out then. There was no tattoos. Uh, slaves had rights. This made Israel very unique. Could you imagine being a, a slave on the other side of the border and you see the slaves on the Israel side of the border and you're thinking, oh, those lucky guys, they have rights. Israel was the, the nation of one God. They didn't have a God of sun, God of earth, God of trees, God of... Walnuts. You know, they had one God. They had the God. If we, would, if we would talk to a lot of Jews today, they wouldn't call him God in the same way that we would call him God. They wouldn't call him uh, Jehovah. Uh, they wouldn't call him Yahweh. They would call him today, they would call him Hashem, the name. That's all they would call him. Back then, they stood, he, the Israelites stood out that he was just of one God. Now there's churches that recognize one God, and the, tri, the Trinity, certainly, but one God. And, but back then, they really stood out. Everything about what God does is peculiar. We, according to the Bible, we are a peculiar people. We are unusual. Sukkot reminds us of that. We're a little bit unusual, and that's okay. If we ever look usual, we don't represent God very well, do we? The unusual can represent God very well. And we should. God's people are unusual. He marks us. We're different. And he asks us to do different things. So Sukkot reminds us of that. Now the third point, I want to set this up just a little bit. Go ahead, Dylan. Let's look at the picture. And I'll explain this here in a minute. So, you know, with Christmas, we would see traditions change over time. Maybe 100 years ago, 150 years ago, there was just Christmas trees with Christmas. And then some brave soul would put candles on the tree. You know what I'm talking about? Some people didn't do that. Some did candles. And fast forward, we see light bulbs, electric lights show up. Maybe it's a big bulb that's in style. Maybe it's a little bulb. Maybe some people, people want no bulbs. Maybe some people want no trees, and they're an act of defiance. They say a tree is a pagan image. They don't do that. They're not into it. But we've seen this journey with Christmas trees, haven't we? And we can imagine it. We've seen movies or old pictures, and we can imagine these things. Well, 
Sukkot is no different. God gave his instructions in Leviticus, but they're very, they're kind of ambiguous. How people filled the days, what they did with the days. He allows a lot of flexibility. So the traditions at the time of Moses were little than the traditions at the time of Jesus. And even today with the waving of the lulav, it's a, it's a different tradition today. Well, back in the time of Jesus, there, was some, there were several traditions that occurred on Sukkot. Just in that, in that era for a few hundred years, there were, we know historically that there were some specific traditions to that time. And one of them, for example, was they would take giant menorahs a big, uh, like a giant menorah, so candlestick, there would be seven, seven bowls with oil. And these candlesticks were believed to be about 75 feet high, these big menorahs. And they would take these, they're long, and they would put, most historians believe there were four menorahs. Some say there were three menorahs, but they'd take these giant menorahs and they'd put them in the court of women at the temple. Anybody could go in the court of women. Men could go in there too, but for some reason they called it the court of women. So they put these giant menorahs there, and they'd put giant ladders these, against these 75-foot-tall menorahs, and they would take uh, the old priestly garments that were worn out, and they would use them as wicks in these menorahs. And they would get young guys under the age of 20 that would climb these long ladders, and at nighttime they would light the menorahs. And Apparently, it was extremely bright, and they said there wasn't one part of Jerusalem that wasn't impacted by the light from these menorahs. The light was so bright. And they loved it. And there is some belief that those menorahs at night were to remind the Israelites that God was with his people at night when they were leaving Egypt. Remember, the scriptures say God was in the form of fire, pillar of fire, with his people at night. So they used the menorahs traditionally to remember that. Another thing they did was every day the priest would take a big pitcher and to get water. And they would leave the temple and they would go down to this pool. This is the Pool of Siloam. If you read in scriptures about the Pool of Siloam, this is what historians are pretty sure. It's, there's a lot of evidence to point to this as the pool. Um, it may have changed over time, uh, the particular layout. But this would be the water source that the priest would have gone down. It's actually fresh water that moves here. And they would go and they would fill this pitcher and they would bring the pitcher back. And as they got close to the, the, the outer wall of the temple, the people with the shofars, the ram's horns, would blow them. And it would make a very distinct sound. And we know it was a long, so beep. And then they would go, dee, 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 beep. And all the shofars players would do it. And they let everybody know, here comes the water. This is a celebration, and the people would march with the priest down. They would march with the priest back, and everybody who didn't know about where the priests were, they all knew that the priests were going back into the walls because of the sound of the shofar. And it was a big time, and there was cheering and celebrating, and the priests would go into this courtyard, and they would put the pitcher of water in one place, and there was a pitcher of wine on the other side, and the priest would stand by the water, and they would take out a silver cup, and they would scoop the water in the cup, and all the people would chant, lift your arm high, lift your arm high, lift your arm high. And they, they did, there was kind of a neat story to that, but they, they would chant that out. They would yell it out, lift it high. And the, you, can, you can imagine the sounds and the crowds and the priests. And this was a happy time. This was a, a crazy scene building up to this. Are you with me? And he would lift it and he would pour it. Go ahead, Dylan. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. On the last day of the feast, we call that Hoshana Rabbah, the last day. It's the great culmination. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, what? 
What a time to be talking. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's using the time that they all know is the water libation ceremony. He's using that time to say, you know what? If you want real water, it's going to come from me. Boy, that's an attention getter. And there's a tremendous amount of boldness that's required in that. And if we don't learn boldness in Sukkot, I don't know what we learn in Sukkot. Now, he said this about the Spirit for whom, he had, for whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And he was saying, hey, everybody, the Spirit's going to come. And he was using an everyday expression or a, 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 an illustration that they all stood, the water libation ceremony that they all understood. He was using that to say a tremendous statement. I can't imagine what they were thinking when they heard him saying this. It's something, isn't it? Sukkot teaches us about the boldness. Sukkot teaches us about the everyday relevance of things that point to the Lord. Ooh, I love it. I would have loved to have seen the ceremony. There was a rabbi... Uh, who wrote down, and we can read his writings, and he said, if nobody knows the true definition of celebration until they're there at the water libation ceremony. And it was at that time, we believe, that he made these statements. Attention getter. By the way, I know some of you are real fans of uh, living water, and I know uh, several of you have really studied out living water. There's a Hebrew expression for it, and it's a really good one, uh, Mayim Chaim, and it just means living water. So if you're a living water fan and you study it out, Mayim Chaim. Okay, so our last point. Oh, by the way, I wanna, Dylan, I, I almost missed a slide here. One of the things that Jesus was saying, go ahead. It, this is Isaiah who prophesied this years earlier. I think it's very deep what Jesus is doing. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, your might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And Isaiah also prophesied, With joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim his name. And with joy, you will draw from the wells of salvation. When Jesus was talking about water, he was using an illustration that had been prophesied hundreds of years earlier. And there's actually multiple sources, multiple prophecies that talk about water and connect water to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus used that water libation ceremony, libation ceremony and connected all of that stuff. All of it. The religious people knew exactly what he was saying. Wow. So our fourth, the big point. Now after this, you can tune me out. The big point is this. <clears throat> this is Zechariah 14. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have gone up... To, okay, now we have to stop here. I know some of you are going to run read, read ahead. I see your eyeballs. Wait a second. So let me just set this up so we're all on the same page. This is a prophecy of the end times. Do you know who believes it's a prophecy of the end times? Jews, even non-believing Jews, 
still to this day recognize this as an end-time prophecy. Do you know who else believes this? Churches. Believing churches, non-believing Jews. There's a universal agreement. This is, this is a prophecy of the end times. But it's so interesting to me that I don't think most people realize this. The nations. Now, this is being prophesied to the nation of Israel. So when it says all the nations, it's talking about all the nations. Hey, Israel, all the nations. Think about that. If I was going to say, hey, Grace, all the churches, you would think I'm talking about all the churches around us, wouldn't you? So Israel's hearing this. Hey, Israel. All the nations. He's talking about all the nations. All means all. All the nations that come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep his beasts of booths. Sukkot. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain in them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. For this shall be the plague which with the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishments to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. I underlined it because I wanted to be, I thought it was interesting. He made it very clear. He's talking about the Feast of Booths. I don't see a metaphor in here. He's talking about Sukkot. All the nations that don't honor Sukkot in the way it's prescribed in the scriptures, at a certain time, are going to be accountable. Now, they don't have to honor Sukkot. If they don't want rain, they don't have to go. I guess it depends what they want, right? Nah, I don't think we need rain this year. Let's stay home. <laughs> it's a terrible visual. So the fourth illustrative value to us for Sukkot is it matters for every single one of us. It's not just a Jewish holiday. If anybody would ever say to you, oh, that's a Jewish thing. No, it's not. Do you see all nations? I believe he's talking about America here. I believe he's talking about Greece and Russia and Ukraine and Nigeria and Mexico and Guatemala. Scotland. I think he's talking about all the nations. This is not just a Jewish holiday. This is something we all need to be aware of. I wonder how many people in churches don't even know what Sukkot is. I think it's good to know what it is. It's good to know the context to it. By the way, okay, I've got to say this. I, I said this also in first service, and I really believe this is true. Every now and then, I've heard people say, whoa, God, God can't do that. And they've, they've used, they've literally said God can't do whatever they think God can't do. This is one of the things I've heard people say God can't do. He can't bring the whole world to this point. And I guess it comes down to this, this bottom line. Do they believe in the sovereignty of God? Do they believe that God can do anything he wants to do? Do they believe it? I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that if God says all the nations are going to go up and celebrate Sukkot, then all the nations are going to go and celebrate Sukkot. I have no idea how he's going to do it, but I'm not God. I believe he can do it. I believe he can make a world. If he can make a world, I think he can convince people to go celebrate Sukkot. Are you with me? Sukkot is an amazing holiday. It shows the whole width of God. 
in eternity. It's just a visual. It's just a snapshot visual. We see it a 4,000 years ago. We're connected to the Exodus and what God did. We're connected to it now. And then we move forward. We see how Jesus himself observed Sukkot and and the promises and the hope that he, he brought and he showed in Sukkot. And then here we are in Sukkot, just trying to get our heads wrapped around it. And we know someday that God's going to, this is it. We're going to all celebrate Sukkot. We all have this great connection in this snapshot view because of this holiday. Come on, this is pretty cool. Don't you think this is cool? If there's ever a day that we can see the might of God, it's this time. If there's ever a, a time that we can see the kindness of God. It's this time. If there's ever a time that we can look and see history, it's this time. If there's ever a holiday that we can look to the future. Do you know, if I look at, if I look at the holiday of Christmas, I don't think so much of the future. If I look at the holiday of Easter, I think a little more of the future. But mostly I think of him just in today. He rose, so today I have a risen Savior. If I think of Arbor Day, I don't think of the future. Unless I'm thinking maybe some of these trees give me oxygen. But Sukkot just screams of the future. There's going to be a great big holiday. God is, uh, during worship today, I just kept thinking of how mighty, how tremendous our God is. You know, we don't serve a weak God. We serve a God that at the end, he's going to bring all mankind together, celebrate Sukkot. This is amazing. So please stand up and we'll pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this illustration or for Sukkot and the illustrations. I'll say that Sukkot brings thank you, Lord, for it. it. We thank you that it was an illustration that our ancestors had. Those behind us will have. We thank you for all that you bring out in your word, Lord. I pray for blessings in everybody who are here, Lord. God, I pray for, the, for all of us to have a deeper, more real sense of how to have a, a proper relationship with you. I mean, a real relationship with you. That we can understand how to call upon you, understand how to seek you, understand how to see more and more and more of how you move in our lives. Thank you for the works in this house, God, and the works in our life. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord, by the way, okay, now if we think, I'm going to interrupt myself. If we think of Sukkot, you know, I don't get offended if I interrupt myself. (laughs) If we think of Sukkot, it's a, you know, it's a week long and we see this whole width of God and God ordained this holiday, right? We just read it in Leviticus. It's a God ordained holiday for all generations. And we know at the end, there's even a Sukkot at the end. Somehow. So it's a God who sees widely, we'll say. But we also know that we serve a God who sees daily. And this blessing, this ironic blessing that God himself said to say is meant to be a daily blessing. So we have a God who sees like this. We also have a God that sees us each day of our life when we need him. We don't have to wait each day of our life. And I just so, like, he's such a comprehensively good God. It's not just a God like this, but a God like right now. I need you right now, God. I don't want to wait till that Sukkot. You know, I need you right now. He's that God. So this blessing is from him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you.
May he lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you again for downloading and listening to this message from Grace Christian Fellowship. We are located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And if you are looking for a church to call home or would like to visit us for one of our services, please visit our site at gracecf.us for our location and service times. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.